Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Medica. It is Monday, February 17th. On this episode, we are discussing hitters mostly in the 100 to 200 overall range based on the NFBC ADP. This is sort of the evil twin or cousin of the episode we recorded last Monday. We focused on starting pitchers going in this range. Uh, Before we get started, some housekeeping to pass along. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. So if you like the show, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate that. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash podcast. Our draft kit's been up for two weeks now. I think Jake's projections just dropped overnight, so those are up and ready to be reviewed as well. In addition to all the articles, everything else we have out there is there for you to check out as well. What's going on today, Matt? Uh, today's actually a big day as far as drafts go. I have a uh, draft champions, one of my higher-end ones today. Then I have the Tout Wars draft and hold, both kicking off at 1 p.m. These will be my final drafts until we go live next month. I will do one, my one and only auction on March 1st for the preseason, and then it's time to rock, baby. Yeah, you get a little, a little break before the final storm uh, later on this month. So you have two drafts running simultaneously that start up today? Well, the good thing is they're both that like draft and hold where, you know, there's – I think the Tout Wars, we don't even have a clock, but I think that'll move uh, well enough. And with the Draft Champions, it's a four-hour clock. I usually prefer the two, but that was the only option for this one. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's start talking about some players who fit this description, guys that are in the 100 to 200 overall range in the rankings. We can't get to everybody in that range in one episode, of course, but I kind of broke everybody into three groups. There are players who fell into that range, guys who were earlier picks a year ago. We'll talk about that group. We'll take a look at some new arrivals to that range, some guys that either jumped up from the two to 300 range or even guys that just weren't even on our radars for redraft leagues to begin last season. And then we'll talk about a few players who haven't moved really at all uh, and kind of see whether or not there's reason to believe things could be different for them in 2020. But we'll start with that first group. Players who have fallen into the 100 to 200 overall range. Carlos Correa just Barely inside the 100 to 200 range. 102.76 is the ADP since February 1st. It's all formats of NFBC drafts. Uh, This time last year, Carlos Correa was going about 50 picks earlier. Kind of a top 50 guy for everybody. And even then, that was the lowest price we'd seen on him since he really broke into the big leagues. There's a lot going on with Houston, of course, with the sign-stealing scandal. A lot of questions about the overall effectiveness of this Houston offense and where things are going to be with the added pressure they have this year. All fascinating topics to dive into. But for Correa specifically, a guy that once cracked the first round in ADP, Matt, it's really tempting to just blindly buy him at that discounted price. So what's your approach with Carlos Correa here in 2020? Well, I mean, I think it all comes down to health, game uh, games played, and at-bats. We know the talent. We know what he can do, but that's been an issue. Uh, I know a friend of the podcast who you did an excellent uh, job with on Friday, Vlad Sedler and his VDPs. He's always been a staunch uh, supporter of Correa, the player. I don't know about the person right now because there's a lot going on with him. And if you look at Steamer, I know Steamer doesn't 
do the playing time. It's adjusted by fan graphs. But that is just an insane projection that Correa has. A guy that, you know, never plays more than, you know, 75 to 100 games is, I mean, it's just mind-blowing, that projection. Yeah, it's been a few years. The only time we've seen Carlos Correa get a full season in the big leagues is 2016. He debuted in 2015, so he was healthy before getting called up. But the last three seasons, a variety of different injuries and none really worse in terms of lost time than what we just saw in 2019. But this is a guy that hit 21 homers in 75 games last year. And again, we're talking about the rabbit ball. We're talking about possible uh, sign-stealing things that were going on that you know obviously gave the Astros some advantage. How much, it's really hard to quantify. Uh, but I, I think there's still a lot to like skills-wise there with Carlos Correa. So I think I'm kind of in Vlad's camp. He still hits the ball hard, doesn't strike out a ton. Uh, I'm not expecting steals to come back. I mean, he ran quite a bit when he came into the league. 14 steals in 99 games as a rookie. 13 steals in his follow-up in 2016. Uh, if he steals five bases, that's just a bonus. But I, I think he could still be a 25 to 30 home run guy with ease in a normal year with a normal ball. Uh, and that's with a good batting average to support it. Let's talk about Andrew Benintendi because he's probably the biggest faller into this range. Had an ADP right around 30 at the end of the 2019 draft season. Now sitting at 113. So in a 15-team league, we're looking at Andrew Benintendi as maybe a late 7th, probably an 8th round pick based on that average draft position. Things are changing a little bit in Boston. No Mookie bets, so that obviously hurts the lineup and some of the, the run production for this group as a whole. Uh, but it could push Andrew Benintendi into a more prominent spot in the Boston lineup. For a guy that was a 2-3 turn player a year ago, are you buying in at this discounted price? Oh, here's the thing. I talk a lot about roster construction and rotation construction. And when you get to this point, it's basically, what does my team need? I, I call this range the 100 to 200, the power alley, because there's a few guys here that we'll talk about later that can really give you that. And there's some really nice pitching as we addressed Last week. So, Ben Attendi getting that spot atop the lineup. Look, Mookie Betts, that hurts. It hurts the guys behind them, Devers, uh, Bogarts, and Martinez, as far as the counting stats. But this is a prime position because, I mean, Devers, what he did last year was pretty sensational. Xander might be the, one of the most undervalued players in fantasy baseball. And JD Martinez, even on a down year last year, which was, I mean, considered for him. I'm not saying he had it down here, but considering his thing, still was pretty damn awesome. So the top of this lineup sets him up for success. I want to give shout-outs to two people, uh, both uh, former members, guys you know, that used to work with. Scott Jenstadt had him on the fade list last year. Look, if you play in the NFBC and you're not following Scott Jenstadt, you're definitely doing it wrong. And James Anderson pointed this out, and I remember hearing him say it. Uh, I guess it might have been on Sirius that uh, Ben Attendi came in a lot heavier. He was more bulky and stuff. And this is a guy over his first two seasons stole 41 of 49 of his uh, stolen base attempts. And last year, that number got cut in half, his, uh, his stolen base attempts. So I think he's come in a lot leaner. He knows how to hit. He has the plate skills. It's a much beneficial situation for him. Uh, the plate appearances, as long as he's healthy, should be numerous. So I think, yeah, he's a guy to definitely buy back in 
as you said, he was on the two three turn last year, and now he's like circa you know pick one ten to one fifteen. I think if you split the difference, if you said next season Andrew Benintendi's ADP is going to be seventy five, I would have no problem with that, and that gives you an idea of how much room there is for profit. I think if he comes in a little leaner this year and, and gets back to stealing bases and serving the role of being more of a table setter as opposed to trying to be a power-hitting run producer, that's probably a better fit for his skill set. Uh, kind of in the background, if you look at his barrel rate, though, year over year since he came into the league in 2016, he's quietly increased that a little bit each year. Even last season, he went from 6.4% in 2018 to 8.1% in 2019. It uh, doesn't mash the ball. I mentioned this in the Friday pod. His average exit velocity is actually a little bit lower than you'd expect for a guy that was going as early as he was going a year ago. But I think the fact that he has speed to fall back on, everyday playing time, and the potential to rack up still really good counting stats, those are all reasons to go ahead and, and buy in at that discounted price on Andrew Benintendi. Uh, speaking of, of Power Alley, though, Reese Hoskins was going inside the top 40 in 2019. <laughs> He's now in the Andrew Benintendi range, right around pick 115. Uh, Hoskins is the guy that every time I hear people talk about him, they bring up the fact that his launch angle went up a lot. Like, he just took it too far, potentially. Uh, but he was a guy that was hitting the ball really high even when things were going well. So I don't know if it was just that. It kind of seems like there's more going on with him. Obviously, it's a great place to hit home runs, being in Philadelphia. The lineup got better a year ago with the addition of Bryce Harper and with the addition of Gene Segura. Uh, they should have Andrew McCutcheon back in 2020. They didn't really have him for most of last season. So it's really a nice supporting cast and a good park. But do you believe in the skills as it pertains to Reese Hoskins? I, I believe in the skills. Look, I've never owned Reese Hoskins until this year. I was never willing to pay that price. There was always somebody else I liked in that range where he went. But uh, if you're buying him for power, yeah, I'm definitely, as you said, I love this supporting cast. I have this offense, a full season of McCutcheon atop there, uh, I, I think it just works out well. If you break down his season from first half to second half, the first half he had 20 homers, uh, second half he had nine homers. His batting average was 263 in the first half. It was 180 in the uh, in the second half. I mean, the Babbitt did drop 100 points. And in August he did get hit on the hand. So maybe that had a thing, you know, to the skills eroding there. But the OPS as well. It was nine, he, was, he was over a 900 player in the first half, and the OPS was below 700. And two other factors, the guy hits the ball in the air. He hits fly balls. <laughs> you know, it's going to be 50%, and no matter how you slice it, it's basically 50%, and he's going to hit that, and he's going to hit the ball hard. It's usually going to be over 45%. So if you're looking for power, I, and first base starts really drying up, he's, for me, he's the guy that is kind of that last line of defense at that position. I know there's a Carlos Santana, there's a... Edwin Encarnacion, a few rounds later, I really just don't want to be getting these old guys in that thing. I know he's on a good team, uh, Encarnacion, but the 37-year-old first baseman don't have a great track record. No, he, it's it's one of those things where you look at Hoskins as a 27-year-old or soon to be 27-year-old, he'll be 27 on the 17th of March, uh, compared to those guys who are deep into their 30s in the case of Encarnacion and, and Santana's you know, no spring chicken himself, even though he's coming off a great year. 
it's kind of easy to see Hoskins as uh, that last resort option at first base because he is kind of the end of that group of first basemen that you see as everyday guys who are, are not at the old, old end of the aging curve. Uh, in OBP leagues, things were still fine last year, by the way, a 364 OBP because he drew a ton of walks, but it's just you know, you're preparing yourself for that batting average drain. Uh, and it's jarring to see the home run total drop off by five for Hoskins in a year where just about everybody was hitting more home runs than ever. I'm definitely interested this year. I'm a lot like you. I, I didn't really have him anywhere last season, so he didn't burn me. So it makes it easier to buy in, I think, <laughs> too, when you didn't have uh, shares that were overpriced from the previous season. The next guy that we're going to talk about might be my favorite player on the board <laughs> at his price. It's Corey Seager. And he came up, I think, on the Friday episode as part of a toss-up, but it came up last Wednesday, too, under the radar. So I've talked about him almost every episode for a week running. I don't understand why he's going this late. I understand like he was coming off a major injury last year, and that probably slowed him down a little bit. But if he gets back to being the player he was you know, before the hip surgery, before the major injuries... He can be a four-category player who is well above average in each of those four categories. The only thing he's not going to do is steal bases, and he could hit 300, maybe get you 30 home runs, probably drive in 100 and score 100 runs as well. Like I just, I see Corey Seager as a good floor player that actually has the ceiling of being an early-round pick, even though he's lost that luster. I mean, he fell obviously last year because of the injury but he's fallen even further in price this year despite the fact that he came back and it logged 541 plate appearances last year yeah i'm i'm kind of with you here i think if you can get a guy with his plate discipline uh in like the 10th round or later that's you know that's a very valuable commodity let's look at the games played here 2016 157 2017 145 2018 there was we all knew the risk heading into that season, you know, and it was only twenty six games. Last year he played one hundred and thirty four. There's not a lot of guys that play one hundred and sixty two games anymore, and even one hundred and fifty is becoming more of the norm for a full season. So he almost played one hundred and forty games. So I'm not, and he's in a great lineup now that gets Mookie Betts to lead it off. Uh, you got Cody Bellinger there. Uh, I really don't know what is not to like. Uh, so I think you're getting a stable player who I would project as a 280 that could hit 290 and hit you 20 to 20 plus home runs should have the counting stats, you know, say he's batting six, maybe he ends up batting fifth at some point. Uh, I don't know for me, I'm with you. I think there's a lot to like here. I, I think there's, there's a lot more risk factored in than there should be in my opinion. And there are other left-handed hitting Dodgers in this lineup who I think are a lot more susceptible to regularly being platooned with the likes of Kike Hernandez and Chris Taylor. We'll talk about one of them in just a few minutes. Uh, cheap speed is hard to come by, and uh, there's a couple guys that we're going to talk about who I think can help make up some ground in that category. Uh, the first is making a move from shortstop to second base. It's Gene Segura. And people might forget he had an ADP of 63 a year ago, and now he's a fringy top 200 guy sitting right at 200 right now. If you look at the ADP report from, again, February 1st through today, playing time really isn't much of a concern for me. We talked about the park with Reese Hoskins. 
Gabe Kapler maybe didn't give as many green lights as Segura was used to getting in Seattle. 10 of 12 as a base dealer last year. Still hit 280, which was his lowest in, I think, the last four seasons. He hit 319, 300, and 304 uh, from 2016 to 2018 before hitting 280 last year. What do you think about Gene Segura as a bounce-back player? Maybe a guy that can't get back up to top 75 status, but this just seems like a massive drop for a player that does a little bit of everything. Oh, he's right there with Corey Seager for me. Another guy that I don't see how you don't like at his price. I I, I think he'll get closer to that 20 stolen bases this year. Uh, He's pretty much... Okay, he hit 280 last year. I think he's much closer to 300. The guy does not strike out. He puts the ball in play. Uh, And he's going to get second base eligibility as well. Just another guy. If you don't get a Seager or you need, say, say you want stolen bases more than the 20 home runs. You want the 20 steal possibility. You go with a, a, a Gene Segura instead of a Corey Seager. At that point, it really is basically... What is your roster construction? How do you want to set it up? I think both players are extreme values right now. And Segura had a few injuries last year. He had mm-hmm. a heel injury that popped up in July. I think he fouled a ball off his shin near the end of the season. So that came up. I saw a hamstring pop up on him late in the year as well. So you have to wonder if it was a case where he was playing through some nagging lower body injuries that also just kind of limited his opportunities to run. You know, they didn't push it as much as they probably could have. Uh, he got hit by a pitch in the head early in the season, too. This is a guy that's had some pretty bad luck over the course of his career. There was a time when he was playing with the Brewers. He was standing uh, on the dugout steps, and Ryan Braun was at the top of the dugout steps with a bat loosening up, and he caught him in the side of the head with his bat. So like, <laughs> just random bad luck kinds of stuff in addition to some to bumps and bruises uh, had a hamstring injury back in April of last season as well I think it's just kind of easy to see like this guy wasn't 100 percent last year playing time is not a concern park and lineup are good all systems go especially at that discounted price even if he creeps up a little bit I'm still interested in Gene Segura in 2020 uh, here's another guy though that fits the bill almost the exact same way in the outfield. It's Lorenzo Kane, Matt. I mean, the price was about the same as Segura's last year. ADP now sits around 184, so he's going about a round earlier. Uh, but we know because of the defense especially, he's going to be out there a lot in that Milwaukee lineup. He should be the primary leadoff guy this season. Uh, maybe you pencil him in for 135 or 140 games because he's had some issues in the past with soft tissue injuries. But still, even with the injuries he played through last year, and he looked hobbled almost all season long. 11 homers, 18 steals, hit 260. Just like Segura, you know, you look at the multi-year track record at batting average. The last time he was worse in batting average than 260 was all the way back in 2013 when he hit 251. I mean, Lorenzo Cain has four 300 seasons in the last six years. So his batting average floor is outstanding. Uh, we saw the OBP soar in his first year with the Brewers. That came down a little bit last year as well. But you got power. You got speed. If 260 is the batting average floor, so be it. But I think there's actually room for him to get closer to 300 again. Yeah. One of the things that I was most impressed the last season, uh, center field is a very tough position to play. And usually at his age, guys don't play that position anymore. And he was reminding me last year of like, Devon White in center field. I mean, he was just that good defensively. 
and he was hobbled, as you said. He, it was pretty much the whole season. Another player where if you're going to say, where am I going to get my speed and a speed average kind of guy in this range, it, it fits. I mean, unless you really need that power guy, then you can go that direction. But if you need to get some speed, pretty much have an average floor. I guess if you don't like Lorenzo Cain, you're banking on, you know, it's just the age curve and he's going to go downward from there. Yeah, you could definitely make that argument for him. Mm-hmm. But I just, maybe I'm I'm biased because I've watched him so much, but he looked uncomfortable on the field mm-hmm. yes. at almost every turn. And it was like, just as he'd start to heal up, he'd get hit by a pitch in the hand or he'd follow the ball off his ankle. <laughs> it was just like, what's... <laughs> What's next for this guy? Like he's, he's out there gutting it out, trying to get that gold glove, and you know, good for him. He, he got it. Uh, but I think you know, playing through injuries last year was a big part of why that slash line took such a big step back. Even if twenty you know twenty eighteen wasn't repeatable from a, a slash line standpoint, I don't think the step back we saw in twenty nineteen is indicative of the player he is at this stage of his career. Uh, this next guy is a free agent, Yasiel Puig can do everything when healthy and there's still teams that have pretty bad outfield depth charts of course these are non-contenders and you'd worry a little bit about supporting cast in those situations but as the price continues to fall the longer he goes into spring training without a team you start to wonder like is it going to happen is he going to go sign with the team in Japan last year Yasiel Puig topped out with an ADP of 70 I think the helium started to catch on really after that trade to Cincinnati with that ballpark boosting home runs his ADP has almost been cut in half. He's down at 139 right now. Power, speed, decent batting average. I mean, 255 to 267 each of the last five seasons from Puig. Uh, are you drafting him right now, or are you just waiting for him to find a team first because of the uncertainty? Uh, the uncertainty the only thing that does scam me is with Puig. If if he got like a crazy one year deal, I mean, would it be abs- would it be absurd to believe he went to Japan or something like that? I mean, I thought Cleveland was a perfect fit to go back there, but they got Domingo Santana now, who I think they're viewing as a cheaper Yasiel Puig type. I mean, it wasn't, what was it, two years ago, Santana was stealing 15 bases and hitting home runs and stuff like that. So that's not an option. And I thought Miami was another perfect spot. Give them, like, a nice one-year deal. You get that player there. You know, the the Cuban base out there. It was just like the perfect mix for that to be a successful uh, union. But it, it is a bit scary, though, because there's a lot of nice guys that we're talking about here that have teams that you know where they're going to be pretty much situated in the lineup for the most part, not everyone. So not having a team, as, as it says, you know, he's going to sign somewhere. But until he does, it does give you apprehension. I'm just being honest. And I think we you know, we don't know the extent to which Puig is considered damaging to the clubhouse. We know there are there are concerns, but being precise with that is, is impossible. I mean, we've we've seen videos and things over the years. I think the triple A video where he was in the limo partying, like that was one that kind of pops into my mind right away. And it makes you wonder, like a team like Toronto, the Blue Jays are are set to start Derek Fisher in right field against righties. Like, how do you not just add Puig if he's five or seven or eight million dollars for one year? Their concern might be that he could be a negative influence on on Vlad and Bichette and Kevin Biggio. I mean, that's 
to me, I, I think that's probably reaching a little bit. I don't think that's necessarily true. But I wonder if that's the perception around the league, and that's part of the reason why he's having a difficult time you know, finding an opportunity that makes a lot of sense. There's plenty of teams that have the need, as I mentioned before. Uh, the Cardinals seem like an obvious fit for him, right? I mean, they've got Tyler O'Neill atop the depth chart in left field. Like Puig would be an upgrade over Tyler O'Neill. Uh, they've got Harrison Bader, good defensive player in center, young guy that you want to commit to if you can, Dexter Fowler. But I just can't imagine Yasiel Puig in a Cardinals uniform. That just seems impossible, <laughs> right? Like they, that just does not seem like an organizational fit that makes any sense. But as you say, they, he would come in and replace Ozuna's bat. Like it, there is a fit there. He is a, a solution. I know the Cardinal way and all that is different, but there obviously he can replace a need for that team. Bizarro world, of course. I know the Giants were thrown out there as a team. It, it's not a great fit park-wise just because it's a very difficult place to hit home runs. Not as bad for righties as it mm-hmm. is for lefties, of course. They did already add Hunter Pence. I just I can't imagine that either. That's that's almost as weird as picturing him in a Cardinals uniform. But I think even, yeah, going back to, the, to Cleveland, that was an option before they brought in Domingo Santana. It just seems like he's running out of possible fits, which is, is frustrating because he is a good player. I know he makes mistakes. There are obviously some concerns, but He's a good fantasy player at a minimum. Let's move on to Chris Davis, Crush Davis, that is. He crept into the top 50 with his ADP, got up to 46 last year, down at 175 right now. I mean, this is a huge discount for a guy that you kind of know what you're getting. In a typical year, 247, 40 homers, lots of runs, lots of RBIs, doesn't steal bases, but it doesn't matter if you're going to score 90 runs and drive in more than 100 and give me 40 home run power I don't care that you don't steal bases what went wrong for Chris Davis last year and is it correctable to the point where you can trust him to get back closer to that 2016 to 2018 baseline I I think absolutely I think it was pretty evident he started the season I believe he hit like 10 home runs in the month of April Looked like the same player we've been seeing for, you know, the last three seasons or so. You know, that 40-something home run uh, potential. Then he got hurt in the field and was never the same the rest of the way. To me, this is basically Giancarlo Stanton, you know, seven, eight rounds later. That, you know, maybe the batting average is a little lighter, but the home run uh, potential is is right there. Okay, maybe it's not the Yankees lineup, but I really like Oakland's team this year. Uh, I, I think they should be a force in the uh, AL West. So this is a guy that is going to be moved up the boards next month in March. I firmly believe that. I was kind of waiting on him Saturday night in a uh, online championship. He was a perfect piece for that team. There was him and two players. One guy went, and I was like, okay, I could probably still get Davis here. And shout out to John Fish. He took him from me. Uh, but that, that's the way I see him. I see it as an injury that debilitated him for the rest of the season. At the start of the season, he was that same player we knew and loved. So I'm, I'm back in on him. I'm excited, too. I just realized that the bat projections that Derek Cardi puts out are now available on Fangraph's player pages. I don't know if that just happened Monday morning or... Well, it happened over the weekend. Shout out to him. I'm sorry to cut you off. <laughs> no, Shout yeah. I, I just hadn't noticed it yet, so really happy to have those out there. 
that projection is the most pessimistic of the four sets that are posted on Fangraphs. And even that system, the bat has them at 231, 34 homers, 79 runs, 89 RBIs. That's with the uh, high plate appearance total, 626. But 610, 652, 654, like he gets there most years because if he's DHing all the time, which I think is more likely now than ever before. <laughs> There's a lot less injury risk in that, so definitely a good bounce back candidate. I think you're right about the price creeping up. Wouldn't surprise me if he went two rounds earlier than that ADP uh, in most of the uh, March main events, but even that seems like it's a good discount, and there's room for quite a bit of profit there, uh, especially if you've got a good batting average foundation too. Like the the risk is almost zero at that price. Let's talk about David Dahl for a moment. He's the last player from this first group, players who fell into this range, the biggest of the three groups for this particular show anyway. Last season, David Dahl was just inside the top 75 in terms of ADP. Now he's back in the 146 mark. That's a big drop for David Dahl. I mean, this is a guy that plays half his games in Colorado, former first-round pick. Uh, All the things that people liked about him last year, I think, are, are generally still true. We saw the injury late last season in the outfield, so maybe that's scaring some people off. Maybe the fact that he's only stolen 14 bases now over parts of of three seasons, maybe that's part of the concern. But his career slash line as a big league hitter in parts of three seasons is 297, 346, 521. So, you know, what's the deal with David Dahl? Why is he discounted this much? I, I think he hit the nail on the head. He got injured again last season. He was having, you know, he was producing. He was, you know, everything you wanted. You got the steals. I, I don't know how much he's going to run. Uh, that I'm not sure about, but this guy can hit. The problem is at bats. About 250 two years ago, circa 375 last year. But you look at his ISO, it's 261 and 222. As you said, half his games are in cores. Uh, another guy that you have to like here, it's just I, when you get into this range, it's about how you've been set up to pick 100, as I mentioned. Because there's a lot of nice hitters and there's a lot of nice complimentary pitchers for your rotation. So intertwining, intertwining your roster here is, I think, really one of the critical or crucial aspects of your draft in in these, you know, whatever few rounds we're, we're, we're talking. Now, there's definitely more power than speed in this mm-hmm. range, but my takeaway so far has been that there is ample speed in this part of the draft. If you start missing out in the 100 to 200 range, that's when you get to the extremely flawed players in the later rounds, guys who have very uncertain playing time or shaky skills, or they might just be one-trick ponies. I think if you go light on speed through the first six or seven rounds of your draft, you can rally back and actually be okay in that category. But in a snake draft setting especially, you can get sniped a couple of times and end up short. So it's risky, but it's doable just thinking about mm-hmm. some of the players we talked about, Segura and Kane, uh, kind of top of mind in that group. Let's talk about some new arrivals into this range, players that have moved up into the 100 to 200 range. Kyle Schwarber was just on the outside looking in, coming off the best season we've seen from him so far as a member of the Cubs. He's now sitting with an ADP of 144. I'm actually surprised he's not more expensive, Matt. I mean, I know power is easy to come by, but 
as Kyle Schwarber goes, I think he kind of put it all together last season and showed us what his new baseline could look like. Uh, yeah, I got I got a co-sign on that one too. Another guy I think we're going to see in the next month uh, steadily move up the board. The power is real. The plate skills are getting better. We know the problems versus left-handers. But, I mean, uh, post-All-Star break last year, I guess it's kind of like a tease or what could possibly be a 280 batting average, 20 home runs. The strikeout percentage went down 6.5%. The OPS was a smidge under 1,000. So there's a lot to like. You know how beloved uh, Theo Epstein holds him. And he should be sitting maybe more as a cleanup guy as opposed to batting leadoff as he was in the past. So those counting stats should really uh, rise. So I agree. I think there's a lot to like here. He's a guy right now that the price is just screams profit, but it's going to move. Had back to back seasons where he's been at least 15% better than a league average hitter in terms of WRC. Plus, all the projection systems on fan graphs have him at 33 home runs or higher. The worst batting average, again, the bat, most pessimistic, 246. I mean, that's a, a really nice player with a ton of run production. And I know the Cubs are, are taking some heat because they haven't really done a lot to improve that roster this offseason. Fair criticism, but this is still a good. Cubs lineup, a very good Cubs lineup to be a part of. And the fact that he's made himself a better defender has positioned himself to not lose quite as much playing time as he would lose in the past. Uh, let's talk about Fran Mil Reyes because I think he's really similar to what Kyle Schwarber offers in terms of his statistical profile. You know, with Fran Mil Reyes, definitely more of a traditional DH uh, guy in the AL that can actually have that opportunity now since he made that move to Cleveland last season, being part of that trade. This is a guy who I think could hit 40 home runs with a normal baseball. Like I don't, I don't doubt the power, but there's something about him that doesn't seem quite right to me. I don't know if it's that I don't think that the K rate can come down. Schwarber, who we just talked about, was up in the high 20s and brought it down to the mid-20s last year. So it seems kind of unfair of me to believe in Schwarber, but to write off the possibility of Reyes getting better um, maybe it's the fact that he's just such a lumbering guy that he just looks like he's clogging up the base paths. And I, I don't know, man. I, I just, I don't, I don't want Fran Mil Reyes at that price, which is so weird when you look at how similar he actually is to Kyle Schwarber, especially in terms of projections. Yeah, I was actually this past week in the draft, I was, I was looking to pair both these guys up. That was part of the game plan. Pretty much the game plan was the team that I created for a Saturday night was to get two of three of Schwaber, Reyes, and Davis. I only got Schwaber. Uh, I missed Fran Mill by two picks. But he's a stat cast darling, this guy. All the stat cast kids, you know, you, you, you pop up that page. He's in the top 2% of hard hit, top 1% of exit velocity, top 5 or 6% of barrel percentage. Uh and maybe it was the trade, you know, young guy getting moved out midseason. He had 25 homers, you know, going into August, and the strikeout percentage did climb about almost 5% or 4%, you know, when he went to Cleveland. So maybe he needed a little adjustment phase. You know, these are real people. <laughs> you know, you have to take that into consideration. But I'm with you. Whether it's a juice ball or we revert back to an old ball, 
he's still going to hit it out of the park. And you're not being forced to pay a premium pick here for that power. So, you know, I look, it's not a cheap pick. You know, it's, it's in that, you know, 140-ish range. But I think if your desire is power, he's going to provide it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think that's a very safe tool. I'm just... I don't know if I'm expecting the K rate to go the other way. There's there's not really any reason to believe it's going to get a lot worse if he soared up to like a 33% K rate. Maybe he'd start to lose playing time, but I think they're relying on him pretty heavily. Like This is another team that hasn't done a lot to to change the look of the depth chart other than Domingo Santana, who we mentioned, and he kind of fits in as a left field option for Cleveland at this point. Let's talk about Max Kepler. He's made the jump from the 224 mark last year to 139 for his ADP since February 1st. I'm a believer in most of the Twins' bats. I think they've found some things in that organization that are pretty sustainable, both with pitching and hitting. With Kepler, there were signs of a possible breakout coming out of 2018. Started to lift the ball more often, and good things were happening. And he's now got a two-year track record with a strikeout rate well below 20% and with a double-digit walk rate, too. So the plate skills look good. The exit velocity is solid. I think he's a pretty well-rounded player. He's not going to steal bases, really. I mean, he did that a little bit, I think, earlier in his career. We're talking like a half dozen bags. Last year, he was caught five times in six attempts. So uh, it might just be a four-category player at this point. And given how low his batting average ceiling seems to be, I think he has to continue to hit a lot of home runs to to have a chance of being profitable at the inflated price. But is he a safe floor player when you account for the two-year run of plate skills and the lineup that he's playing in? Well, I mean, as you said, that was the thing for me last year. I was heavily involved with Kepler. And as you said, when he was asked that question, how did you hit so many home runs? And he honestly said the juice ball. Uh, look, you said the plate skills and the fact that he hits fly balls and he hits the ball hard, that's a pretty awesome combination. I think the batting average is capped with him, though. He it, The ceiling on that, I don't see him hitting 36 home runs again. I'm going to be honest. I think maybe he falls more in the high 20s. Maybe he hits 30. As much as I loved him last year, I think he's kind of safe, but not my favorite target this year at, at his price. I think you can just find other players in this mm-hmm. range who either have a higher floor or they offer something in a fourth or fifth category. Again, you can you can call Kepler like a four-category player, but you're basically getting like middle-of-the-pack batting average from him, so really he's more <laughs> of a three-category guy, and that's just not quite enough at that inflated price. It, even though I think he can kind of come close to repeating what he did last year, I don't want to break even at the inflated price. Did you? Could you tell how I really didn't want to say anything bad about Max Kepler because he was so good to me last year? Yeah, I, yeah. I tried being as nice as possible. <laughs> I, he's he's a nice player. It's just there's a certain yes. point where the price is is too high, and I think that's where that's where he's at. Um, let's move on to a couple other players that fit this same description. First timers in this range, uh, Kevin Biggio is. Carrying a high ADP, 133. And I don't like his approach because it's so extremely fly ball heavy. It's like the, you, you can go too far. <laughs> he hits the ball on the ground 25% of the time. Uh, he was 14 for 14 as a base dealer in just 100 games last year. 
hit 16 homers along the way. Not surprisingly, a 234 average to go with the uh, power-speed combo because of that flyball-heavy approach. He does walk a lot. He's always walked a lot. But there's a lot of swing and miss in his profile, too. <laughs> and I think the numbers at AAA might be leading people to believe that there's a lot more projectability with Kevin Biggio than there actually is. So he's a weird player for me, Matt. Like I understand why people are chasing him, but I'm not a part of that group right now. Yeah, I mean, people are chasing, as you said. I think he was top 2% in walks, so he was really, he has that, uh, but bottom 10% in strikeouts. But the thing that has people, I think, really excited is the fact on the major league level, he was 14 for 14 on stolen base attempts. Uh, if you include the minor leagues, it was 19 of 20. He hits the ball hard. And he kind of falls in a category for me where he's a young player with pedigree. You know, his dad is a Hall of Famer and all that. But he had that initial, he had that, you know, whatever it was, a month and a half, two months of actually playing in the major leagues. So I really like that aspect of it. Uh, I know there's a guy we'll talk about here, I believe, Gavin Lux. If you flipped the batting orders for these two guys, Gavin Lux to me would be uh, a couple of rounds higher. But the only thing I can say bad about him is he's batting right now projectably like eighth. Could he move up? Yeah. But with Biggio atop that lineup with Bichette and Guerrero, I know the Blue Jays never ran in the past, but the team is kind of set up to have guys run. And I, and I think they, I'm going to assume, maybe I'm wrong to do that, but I think you will see Bichette run. I don't know if he's going to steal as many bases as everybody's predicting, but until Baggio starts getting caught, or Biggio, uh, I think he's going to keep running too. Yeah, I think the thing about him being like the number two hitter in this lineup and not really having a lot to push him for playing time, at least to begin the season, that's what's driving him above someone like Lux. If you put him in the same situation, I think you you touched on it. Like Lux is the better player. Like there's a much better hit tool with Gavin Lux. That alone, I think, makes him a better fantasy player in the long run if you equal out the playing time. But we can't assume that. And, you know, unless Jock Peterson gets traded to the Angels or somewhere else between now and opening day, there's a really good chance that Lux stays in the bottom third of the lineup, at least until there's an injury. And even then, they have plenty of other options to move up there. So you're, you're kind of hoping that the skills push him to a more prominent spot, but even if things break his way, they still might not. So Lux is the kind of player that I get wrong all the time because I get too optimistic about the skills, and I don't think enough about the specific role and the ways or the most likely scenarios even for how it's actually going to play out. Like I get too fixated on the possibility of the 10% outcome playing time-wise. Like He leads off and plays every day when he might be the guy instead of Corey Seager who yields some starts against lefties to one of Taylor or Kike Hernandez, and the other guy plays in the outfield as part of a platoon uh, with someone else. I mean, there's there's lots of ways this Dodgers puzzle can fall into place. And, you know, I, I like Gavin Lux as a talent. I think the price is very fair. But Lux versus Biggio is the classic example of a guy who has the job and a prominent spot in the lineup versus a guy whose playing time is a lot less certain. Yeah, and, and I think a key factor at this point is, you know, what is your team? Everybody's saying... 
that Biggio is going to be that batting average dream. I haven't seen anybody really project him over like 240. <laughs> so uh, if you have built a a batting average, you know, uh, foundation, then you can, you know, he's he's more apt a player that could fit that team, especially if you need some speed. Yeah, um, I'm with you there. Let's talk about Tommy Edmond for a minute. He's kind of a similar player to Kevin Biggio in that you can expect some power and probably a little more speed. Also had a good run in a partial season last year. 15 of 16 is a base dealer. The home runs were a surprise from him. Like with Kevin Biggio, power is not a surprise. He hits the fly balls and, and tries to have that approach. With Tommy Edmond, we'd never seen him hit as many homers at any minor league stop as he did with the Cardinals in 92 games when he hit 11 homers last year. So there's definitely some concern for me in the power category, especially. I like that he can play all over the place. We talked about the fact that they didn't really replace Marcelo Zuna, so at least until they bring up Dylan Carlson, I think that opens up playing time for Edmund. How do you value Edmund at this point? Do you think he belongs in the same range as Biggio? I think they're right next to each other in ADP because we just talked about the differences in playing time between Biggio and Lux. I think you could probably make the same argument between Biggio and Edmund. Well, I think Edmund is someone that I always like want to get and I just miss out on. So I'm going to have to really, you know, if, if I want him, I'm going to have to change things up a little. Because I, I believe in that speed. And he did get, you know, like 275 at-bats uh, post-All-Star break. And, you know, I, I the speed is, is there. And he stole, I believe, like 12 out of 13 or something like that. I think the Cardinals kind of need a guy like this in the lineup. But you said Dylan Carson is, you know, everybody's saying is going to be up. And I would probably project if they don't add to this lineup, he'll be up sooner than later. So the question becomes, can Matt Carpenter bounce back, stay healthy? So I do like Edmonds. I like the uh, position eligibility. The power, if the ball changes, I am a little suspect on that. One more player in this group, a first-timer, added to the 100 to 200 range is Mitch Garver, a top-five catcher. I mean, he's going kind of right next to Wilson Contreras, so that's a, a fork in the road for some people, either choosing between those two guys or maybe just waiting longer on catcher in general. Do you trust Mitch Garver coming off of his breakout from last year? I mean, Jason Castro's gone, so playing time opens up a lot. Uh, Williams Estadio, I, I think, is just a backup catcher. He's not really a threat to be a 50-50 split guy. So this looks like a wide open path to 115 or 120 games for Mitch Garver in 2020. Uh, I do like the skills. Uh, the question is, can he can he stay healthy? I would, if they if this team had like a DH option, I think you know I I'd, I'd be a lot more secure. In taking him, I believe they added uh, who was it? Alex Avila as a uh, catching option, who actually has some pretty nice hard hit numbers, believe it or not. Uh, but I like Garver, and he was a guy last year that did really nice things for me. Uh, I know on the team with uh, Christopher Cairo, I think we finished like uh, 11th overall in the main. He was our catcher, and you know, a guy that we weren't cut, we knew he was out for a month. But he's had some concussions stuff in the past. I'm personally not a guy that's really ever pays for catching. 
I like to wait later or maybe that, you know, 15th round on where the Sean Murphys or the Tom Murphy types and add a Kurt Suzuki. So for me, I just, I'm not making that investment here on Glover. Yeah, I'm okay with paying up for a catcher, but usually it's when they fall a round or two off the ADP and everything else before that's been falling into place where it's kind of a luxury for me. Usually I, there's something else I need. I need starting pitching. I need saves. Uh, I need speed. I, I I can't just take the catcher because I I have a categorical need that has to be filled in that same range. But as far as the skills go, I I'm buying into what we saw last year. I mean, I think there's probably some downturn coming in the batting average. We see that reflected in the XBA. He hit 273. His XBA was 256. But you give up 15 or 20 points of batting average if you're going to approach 30 home runs again. Increase playing time probably. Brings up the counting stats a little bit. It's hard to imagine. It almost seems like everything that could go right for him last season went right. So as far as Garver goes, like the increased playing time makes it possible that he can repeat what he did last year. I'm not sure he can exceed it, even with another 100 or 125 plate appearances on top of that. And that's coming from someone who actually likes him. I just won't be drafting him at that price. I'm much much more likely to have him if it's an auction scenario. A couple players that are in this range who have a similar price to 2019. Ahmed Rosario, ADP last year, 143. ADP right now, 140. So basically the exact same price a year later. Uh, He came up uh, as part of a toss-up on the Friday show that I recorded with Vlad Sedler. And with Rosario, I think the the biggest takeaway point from Vlad's analysis was that it kind of depends on Brandon Nimmo. Because if Brandon Nimmo is healthy, he's an OBP machine. And he's going to lead off. And if Nimmo's leading off, Ahmed Rosario probably gets moved to the bottom third of the batting order, which does change the makeup of his counting stats quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's precise what Vlad said. And uh, Rob Silver said something, I think, about a week ago on Twitter. Ahmed Rosario was like a really kind of hyped up guy last year. A lot of people saw him taking that next step. And he did some really nice things last year, but yet kind of stayed in that same uh, range. But if you just, I th- uh, the name is Matthew Bronstein. I, I wrote it down because I wanted to give him props. He did an excellent Ahmed Rosario tweet. So if you want to just search that, uh, it basically shows his improvement. I mean, the average exit velocity has gone up. The hard hit percentage has gone up. The ex-Wober. He's stolen basically 20 bases the last two years, 24, and I think it was 18 or 19 last year. The batting average uh, was 280-something last year, and I know the XBA actually supported that. So this is a guy that you know can really help you if you need that speed and you're in this range, but... You know, that batting eighth is what's really... The National League, it's a lot different. Because like Buxton last year, I tweeted something in the last week or two about Buxton and Sterling Marte at the All-Star break last year. They were pretty much similar players. Obviously, Marte had a higher batting average. But in like 100 less plate appearances, Buxton had the same counting stats and stuff. Of course, he was on a monster lineup in the American League, which is going to turn the lineups over more and more. So Ahmed Rosario, I, I think there's too many signs pointing here that are good to 
actually, you know, that I will take the gamble in the right uh, in in the right scenario. So, I, as much as I hate drafting guys that bat eight, I think there's a lot to like here. I think he's a lot like Tim Anderson in terms of his mm-hmm. profile. Uh, we saw the XBA shoot up last year too, and the range of outcomes in that category for him seems like it's pretty wide. Uh, in both directions, but I think at the price, I'm perfectly content to take that chance if I'm looking for uh, that that player who could pop a little bit. I mean, if, I think the way I described the toss up with Elvis Andrews was if I've already got an old core, I might go a little younger with Rosario just to have that possibility of getting more than I'm paying for. With Andrews, I think you're kind of buying in because you you know what you're getting. It's eight to ten homers and probably twenty five steals. Rosario could maybe reach a level slightly above that, but his drawback is that he could be a little bit worse. Real quick, let's talk about uh, Byron Buxton. 154 was the ADP last year. I think 160 is the ADP now. So much like Ahmed Rosario, where not much has changed in a year. And if if Corey Seager's not my favorite player we're talking about in this episode, it might actually be Buxton. And I was in last year. I know he was hurt and he missed almost half the season, but he cut the strikeout rate down. He's still very efficient as a base dealer, and he was hitting the ball harder than ever before. He was getting to more power. I still see early round talent with Byron Buxton. He doesn't have early round health. He's got a, a terrible track record with injuries. It's a little bit like the Carlos Correa situation. Big difference being that that Buxton never got quite that high in terms of what people were paying for him. But I'm in on Byron Buxton yet again at this price. I think 160 is an absolute steal for a guy that has the potential to be a 20-homer, 30-steal player in this environment. Uh, it's going to say on my tombstone that, you know, he drafted Byron Buxton every year. <laughs> I do think the ADP might slide a bit here because there was talk that he may not be ready for opening day. And anybody that might have been hesitant prior but was thinking of getting back in is going to be like, okay, I'm not going to get in now. It's again, we got to worry about him, you know, starting the season healthy. So I'm at the right price. I think he's a player that, you know, at certain times, you're going to have to be willing to be wrong on guys. And if you set up that foundation, you can take the shot on Buxton. I mean, if you're just drafting all young guys that, you know, don't have track record, it's a lot harder to take a Byron Buxton on your team. <laughs> or if you just avoided pitching, at some point you got to fill up that pitching. But if you have a balanced team coming into his price range, he can fit that need for you. I mean, even if it's with the speed, even if, you know, he hit 13 homers but stole 32 bases and, you know, bats 260 or 257 or something like that. You know, those 32 stolen bases with double-digit homers is going to help your team in this landscape. I think the other part of this with Buxton is that I find it a lot easier to fill in outfielders during the season. There's so many of them in the pool that you know you can find someone who plays a lot. Even if you don't find someone who fits the same categorical profile of the player you lost, you can find someone getting regular run in a 15-team or at least somebody on the big side of a platoon, but I think you can even find like everyday playing time. Things turn over enough where you're going to have opportunities to replace him if it doesn't go right from an injury standpoint. It's a good point to bring up, though, that he's not necessarily going to be ready for opening day. That's worth monitoring very carefully in the weeks ahead, see what kind of progress he makes. Um, He hasn't been taking batting practice on the field yet, so... 
that's definitely a concern. It's a torn labrum that he's coming back from. Uh, but if two weeks from now, he ramps up the activity, kind of catches up to his teammates, and has a relatively normal spring after that. I think that's probably good enough for me to go ahead and, and make that investment once again. Uh, before we wrap things up, I mean, we're looking at this group of players, and, and it's a group of players that you generally are trying to wait on. And again, it can backfire because somebody else could like them too. So in a snake draft, there's there's risk in waiting too long. If these prices seem too low, you may have to jump players up a little bit. What's your general approach with this to avoid missing out on guys that you really like at these discounted prices? Well, the hope, yeah, I think this is extremely important because I assume everybody plays in shop rooms with, you know, smart people that are kind of thinking the same way I'm thinking. Like, you know, whoever it is, a Davis, a Schwaber, a Franmil, those are one of those power guys I, I want to nail here or. What are the speed guys? Or even, even a, say, a, a pitcher that we talked about last week. So if everybody else has this in their mind, you have to be either somewhat aggressive or put yourself in a position where, you know, maybe there are two guys I want. Realistically, I'm only going to get one here. Who am I valuing more? Because if you, there's a possible chance you don't get that guy. And then what is the next option going to be? You, you know, is what is the fall off from there? So I know a lot of people talk about, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to reach too much. There are times on certain players that fit your dynamic of your roster that, that reaching is the right course of action based on, you know, based on your research. If you if you believe in your research, then go ahead and do it. You don't just do it because you got to say, oh, that guy has to be on my team. There's nobody that really has to be on your team. It's those numbers that you need on your team. Right. So I, I think if you, if you have players you really like that you're waiting on, what I would try to do, regardless of the type of league you're playing in, is have a few similar players later. So if Buxton is a key player in your strategy, what happens if someone else gets Buxton? Like, who is that next player that fits the profile, whether you're chasing the speed or the power-speed combo, whatever it is, find another one to the best of your ability and at least have a plan B and maybe even a plan C already in mind. That way you're not scrambling on draft day. You're not saying, hey, this guy was a really important part of my plan. Someone else got him. Now what? Trying to figure that out when you're frazzled, when you don't have a lot of time, is pretty difficult. But if you think about it ahead of time, yeah, you're upset you missed out on your guy, but you've got a few more in mind for later on. Maybe it's even three or four rounds later, so you just do something else entirely in the area where you're going to take the player that you just missed out on. So definitely uh, comes down to prep, as it often mm-hmm. does. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can follow Matt on Twitter at CTM Baseball. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you're not already a subscriber, again, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash podcast. Be sure to check that out. The projections dropped today. Lots of other great stuff in there. Articles, other sets of rankings, everything you could want to get ready for the 2020 season. For Matt Medica, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back on Wednesday with Under the Radar. Thank you.